0: hi everybody welcome to the uh... technology uh... assisted clown car goat rodeo called the stress for your Hospital Bill Whittle. Um, we've talked about this before normally i get a little more upset than this I'm somehow sublimely calm today uh... we keep using the same software and uh... i keep hitting the same buttons and sometimes it connects to twitch and sometimes it doesn't and most annoyingly this happened to me uh, Couple shows ago, I tell it to connect to Twitch, and there it is in the stack. And I go live. It's like well, there's no Twitch. Why? Oh, because there's a little toggle switch just barely there. You got to make sure that when you add Twitch, you, you know, you're adding Twitch. Anyway, here we are. So, um, that's all behind the scenes. Those of you who are watching the show uh, on Stratosphere Lounge on, uh, on YouTube uh, as a recording, uh, don't have any time for uh, for that kind of nonsense. Just consider the show perfect, and everything will be just fine. Ah, oh, boy muria um, dark too soon uh, at least we're not streaming from a submarine uh, now can somebody please uh, uh, kobo bunny is saying that it's muted I'm hoping it's muted for him everybody else seems to have me here because otherwise the comment section would be um would be a fire as we say um, okay well anyway uh, I think the things uh, on everybody's mine, certainly on my mind, is uh, uh, six hours ago um, came the announcement that the uh, that they discovered a debris field uh, well clear of the Titanic debris field and um, and that the, uh, the five-man subversible, uh, by all accounts, is, was crushed on the way down. Uh, the, the latest I heard was that uh, the, de- the debris field is consistent with a, a in-column implosion, Aesop's retreat, who's a smart fellow, says it looks like it was 1,600 feet off the surface, uh, correction, off the bottom. So they never got to see the Titanic. Um, So there's a lot lot to talk about here, and I'd like to spend a little time talking about it. Um, You know, well, David Booty said, just like Thresher or Scorpion, this, this is something that, uh, this particular topic is something that I am well familiar with as a layman anyway. Uh, my favorite episode of the Cold War uh, was episode nine called Cloaks and Daggers, and that entire thing, the first almost hour, oh, certainly an hour of that 90-minute episode, what was, um, oh, I'm sorry, 1,600 feet away from the bow, not 1,600 feet above the... A surface, but the the uh, the the large part of that uh, episode was about uh, Project Azorian, which uh, partially successfully raised a, a Soviet um, conventionally powered uh, missile submarine from the bottom of the ocean, sixteen thousand feet down. Titanic is almost thirteen, uh, and. The beginning of that episode had to do with uh, submarines, just lots and lots of stuff on submarines, Nautilus, and, and um, Skipjack, and all the things that were necessary for nuclear-powered um, submarines, and talked about how um, how horrible the early Soviet uh, boats were. Uh, the, the first Soviet um, nuclear sub had some real problems, uh, and mostly spent its time in port, but their first ballistic missile sub... Uh, K-19. Uh, they, Hollywood says they called it the Widowmaker, but that's not what they called it. The, the sailors on board K-19 called it Hiroshima. Um, I, I want to say something like that sub killed something like 60 of its own crew members over the course of the years, including construction. And my point was oh look at look at these Soviets, look how backwards they are, and because and, um, they were. And they're just throwing people's lives at a problem in order to get the prestige. And this is what insecure people and countries do. They just plain you know, it's kind of the Napoleon Napoleon complex, and apparently Napoleon wasn't really that short either compared to other people. But I digress as usual. Anyway, um, so the the reason I set things up that way was because I dealt in some detail with the loss of uh, USS Thresher, which was brand new. Uh, state-of-the-art, most complex submarine ever built to the time. I think it was the largest sub built at the time. It was a U.S. attack sub that replaced um, the Skipjack class, and it was lost, I want to say 63, Uh, and it had been doing test dives, so I think they did some maintenance on it, and they had a, a support ship on the surface. And uh, Skylark, was it? USS Skylark, something like that. And so they were kept doing test dives, and then they're talking to it by the underwater telephone, which is an acoustic thing, not a, not a cable thing. And um, and they had a reactor scram. Um, when, when a reactor gets in trouble, it'll scram. It just shuts the reactor down automatically. And um, they're trying to drive the sub to the surface on battery power, and it, it didn't have enough juice the emergency ballast tanks on Thresher would normally have just popped it right to the surface like a cork but they found out that um, that when you run air through those pressure vents if the air is extremely humid and it turned out it was in the case of Thresher the uh, cooling effect, the venturi effect will, will create ice on that vent and freeze the vent shut that's exactly what happened so Thresher went uh, went down by the stern and um, I th- it, this is all if memory service numbers are pretty close i think thresher's test depth was 1200 feet 1200 feet test depth is the is the depth at which a, um, a submarine is is safely rated it's kind of like on an airplane there's a, a speed called v e velocity never exceed velocity and that's the red line on a steam gauge uh, airspeed indicator and what that means is in both cases both for test depth and and uh, VNE do not exceed speed. It does not mean that the airplane's gonna c- come apart if you go one knot faster than VNE, or if you go one foot deeper than test depth. All that all those two numbers mean is, this is what we're gonna certify it for. We're confident that as long as we're above, in the case of Thresher, I, from memory, as long as we are at 1300 feet or shallower, and in the case of VNE, as long as we're moving at that speed or slower in smooth air, then the airplane and submarine can be counted on 100%. Once you go past those limits, once you go past test depth or VNE, you're on your own. Now, virtually every case, in fact, I can't think of anything that's not even close to this, engineers will normally build at least 50% strength beyond that, at least that. Um, But they, You've got to set limits somewhere. And this, these test depth and v were limits of what, what engineers believe are, are maximum operating conditions. So when, when Thresher went down by the stern, um, her, her test depth might have been 1,000 feet. They got a garbled message saying 900 feet. They were just sinking, trying to get that reactor going. Uh, and it went below its test depth. I think they sent up a message, garbled message, saying test depth, meaning exceeding test depth. And the crush happened at something like a little more than 2,000 feet deep. Again, from memory. These are close, but all from memory. Um, and then in 1968, we had uh, a similar problem with the USS Scorpion, a skipjack class sub, uh, disappeared out, out of the South Atlantic. Unlike the thresher, which was directly underneath the us support ship we didn't know where scorpion was and there's some interesting theory behind how we found it in terms of uh, dispersed intelligence we're not going to get into that here um the um the scorpion was apparently doing exercises near the surface looks like the battery compartment might have vented hydrogen had an explosion on board and and so the scorpion went down i want to say in I think Scorpion, I think Thresher was 8 or 10, Scorpion was 10, 11, something like that, deeper than Thresher, around the distance of the Titanic. Um, And when when they found the Scorpion, and this is the part that bears on the loss of the uh, submersible today, as we record this. So the Skipjack uh, class was the first nuclear-powered Modern-looking hull, extremely aerod- uh, hydrodynamic, rounded bow, completely smooth. Just the sail sticking up, big sail too. Cool-looking sub, um, and fast. Uh, and so the, the the stern of the of the Scorpion uh, tapered to a much larger degree than modern subs like the Los Angeles class. Kind of was a cone shape and tapered to the propeller in the back, and then the the dive planes and the rudders and when they found the wreckage that entire stern section had telescoped in it had failed along these lines where it begins to to narrow and that the the entire stern section was crushed in and it was crushed in so fast and so hard that it left the propeller and the drive shaft there in other words it 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 moved so quickly that the that it didn't take the drive shaft or the propeller with it and i've known for um, as long as I've been studying submarines, that uh, that things happen instantaneously or near instantaneously, I thought I thought, oh, it's going to be relatively quick. It wasn't until I did the research for um, for the Cold War that I realized how quick this is. Um, this this is a number that is truly unbelievable. It just happens to be true. The calculations done when Scorpion's hull was found showed that. When Scorpion exceeded its test depth and when it finally got to crush depth, which was probably around two, 3,000 feet, not ten or 11,000 feet where the Titan was, it was calculated that that stern section compressed into the rest of the hull at a speed that the, the section was moving at 2,000 miles an hour. That's what that pressure did. Two thousand miles an hour is how fast those back bulkheads came into the, the body of the sub. So, in those circumstances, to say that death is instantaneous, it, 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 you know, you, you could be morbid, but you could be shot. You be shot in the head, and you could still be conscious for a while. In this case, you're just physically annihilated, and the total duration of that event, in the case of Scorpion, I want to say it was 0.11 seconds, so 11 milliseconds little more than one-tenth of a second and um and i uh, did a quick calculation found out that uh, or, or research i didn't do the calculation uh, that the fastest measured human response time was Usain bolt who who was off the blocks in motion 0.13 seconds after the pistol shot so that's the, the the fastest reaction time ever recorded is a tenth of a second for Usain Bolt between when he hears a shot and when he starts running. And this took... Point, I'm sorry, 0.13 seconds. So so this test depth crush of, of Scorpion took place in less time than that. So it is, it's not only that they didn't feel any pain, it's not even it's not even that they didn't even know really what hit them. It's just they're there and they're not. There's no unconsciousness there's no just there's no awareness your the signals from your eyes don't have time to get to your brain let alone process it before you're just completely annihilated physically its its if they did not know and I'm hoping this is the case and I suspect this is the case because these things don't happen incrementally I'm virtually positive that that they were on their way down to the sub uh, to the titanic they were in the middle of a conversation they were all excited everybody was happy nobody knew there was a problem they were just getting finally close to the bottom hour and 3 quarters had gone by and they're and they're just in the middle of a that's that's it just gone. um now uh, there are obviously a lot of things uh, and as a result of this particular dive, and all of these things bear are talking about, I want to talk about several of them. Um, we did a Scott Ott segment recorded on Tuesday morning, was released this morning, and when I posted it last night around midnight uh, for a delayed, for 6 a.m. Uh, 6 a.m. Pacific time um, post on our website and on our email list. Um I, I knew by then that there was no chance of, of rescue because that was when the oxygen would have definitely been gone. But I had had a, a, a flurry of a thought saying, it's not the oxygen, that's not the problem. And uh, there was a group text going around uh, earlier today, just before the press conference, where a person who I'm very proud to call a friend and really astonished to call a friend, not, not just Bert Rutan, but his brother Dick, was in, in typical... Dick Rutan fashion. His call sign in the Air Force was killer. He doesn't mess around. Dick Rutan is a straightforward all-American hero. And he's one of uh, the people I did in America's Forgotten Heroes. Dick said Dick had, had worked on, on trying to set the the he, he circumnavigated the globe in Voyager. Unrefueled flight around the world in, in the Voyager built by his brother Burt. And honestly, for the life of me, I can't remember if it was before or after, but I'm virtually positive it was after. It might have been both. But Dick also spent a significant amount of his life trying to get to go around the world in a balloon. Uh, Now, you don't do that in hot air balloon altitudes. You do that in research balloon altitudes. You're you're talking about 60,000, 70,000 feet or higher. And... And Dick was because and the reason Dick knows this, you see, is because Dick had to build. He had to build a, a capsule. He had to build a capsule. It would be, it's essential. It's so close to a vacuum that it might as well be a vacuum. And he had to build and design this thing. And Dick said, clear, clearly said, what had been just buzzing around the back of my head, like this: this oxygen's not the problem. What, what, the oxygen's not the problem. If you saw Apollo thirteen. You know that the problem wasn't that they ran out of oxygen. What nearly killed them was they, they could not scrub the carbon dioxide out of the air. So it wasn't a question of them having 96 hours of oxygen. That's how the – nobody in the news talked about this. No one. No one talked about this ever. But during that entire – the last three or four days of, of you know hope and bangings and all the rest of it, I don't know what their total time was with the co2 but it would have been less than 24 hours i'd be willing to bet you and i don't know what exactly their carbon dioxide scrubbers were capable of but without a doubt carbon carbon dioxide poisoning would have killed them before the lack of oxygen did and um fortunately they didn't have to deal with that as i mentioned a few minutes ago it's not just that Death was sudden. It's, it was, death was in they, they simply were in the middle of a sentence and that's it, gone. I don't think they worried. I don't think there was a moment of fear. I think they were filled with with enthusiasm and hope and excitement and getting close now. We're going to get close now. And then just boom. Uh, CO2 asked, does CO2 make you pass out first? It does. And, um, and, uh, I well, thank you very much for that revolver. Very, very, very nice of you. So, um, so, CO two. Dick said, "Fatal level of CO two is is well. Fatal level is six percent CO two. Low absolute pressure. Bill, I'm an aviator. I, you know, the correct terminology. Uh, I'm I'm just a pilot. Uh, uh, Dick knows the correct terminology. Um, I don't know what the low absolute pressure." means. Honestly, I've never heard the term before. I can figure out what it means because I know what low means and I know what absolute means and I know what pressure means. However, here's the thing, right? Um, let's just say that they had sufficient CO2 scrubbers. They're talking about, again, nobody in the, this is what, this is the first point I want to make is how ignorant the press is in terms of any kind of fundamental physics, anything, right? The question should not have been how much oxygen is there on board? Because even if they had sufficient CO2 scrubbers, if, I have a, if I've got an enclosed submarine, submersible, and I've got, let's say I've got 30 tanks of, of air, like scuba air, just sitting there in case of an emergency. If I start feeling the air getting a little thick, let's just say that they scrubbed the carbon dioxide out. And let's just say the tanks are filled with pure oxygen, because that's what they had, presumably. Then, if I just open those tanks of oxygen, what's going to happen to the pressure inside the submarine? or the submersible in this case. You cannot simply add gas to an enclosed structure. You can put compressed gas in there, you can open those valves, but once you open the valves on those tanks, the pressure outside of that tank is gonna wanna be the same as the pressure inside that tank. And so there's nowhere for the, the, let's just say the dead air, the old air, there's nowhere for the old air to go. Now on many uh, diving, vessels, I assume this is true on submarines, they're not at those kind of depths where there's a a valve, right? A simple valve is not going to fail. But that design of that vehicle, and we'll get to that in a minute too, there's no way to put it. There's nowhere for the air and the extra oxygen to go. So I I never heard CO2 mentioned. I never heard that, that overpressure thing mentioned. And all I heard was Okay, well, we're down to the last 48 hours, now we're down to six hours, as if, as if this guy who had a fairly cavalier uh, attitude about a lot of things, which I also want to talk about, uh, as if 96 hours, because uh, honestly, one or two news agencies, I think one of the British newspapers, basically had a countdown clock, right? And it's like, okay, we're at 93 hours and 42 minutes, and, and right at 96 hours, that's just absurd, right? That's just absurd. Now, there's some other things that are uh, going on here. Um, we were able to locate that sub, the Russian sub. Soviets sent out their entire navy searching for it, sixteen thousand feet deep in uh, 1968. Is they they didn't know where it is. That's the purpose of a nuclear sub is to go out and get lost, a ballistic sub. So they searched an area the size of the United States with much more primitive technology, didn't find anything. But we did, the US Navy did. And the reason the US Navy did is because by sixty eight we had in place around the world a series of hydrophone listening stations that make up something called the SOSIS system. And SOSIS is a series of underwater listening stations. I used to think they were like microphones. The things are like this just it's giant grid. It's the size of a of a bus, you know. Um, and and we were able to tell where that Russian sub was with a relatively high degree of precision because the sound of the implosion was something that we could triangulate. We had measuring stations all across the Pacific, all around the world. And when you hear a sound you get a bearing on that sound, you get two different stations, you got a pretty good fix, you got three different stations, you got a real good fix. So that got us close enough for, for the Navy to take, um, was it Halibut? I think it was Halibut. Halibut was a U.S. sub that um, a conventionally powered sub. I'm virtually positive it was a, a, a Guppy sub, a conversion of the World War II fleet submarines. But in any event, Halibut was special because Halibut had a huge bulge on the nose, and Halibut had that bulge because the first the first ballistic missiles launched from a submarine were flying um, enormous, enormous, bigger versions of, of the V1 buzz bomb, called a Regulus missile. And to launch that thing, the sub had to surface, and then the crew had to come out, and they had to crank open the doors to this, to this enormous, you know, bulge in the front there. They had to winch out these Regulus things, bring it back towards the sail, get the wings on or unfolded or whatever they had to do, crank the thing up to an angle, you know, put light, light that candle, and off it would go. And um, that's not exactly stealthy, you know, that's, but it's better than nothing. So the Halibut had room for two Regulus missiles, and when, when it became clear that that wasn't working and the Navy started on the Polaris submarine missile, which is an actual ballistic missile, can be launched from under the water, sub ballistic missile, they found out that Halibut had this enormous hangar that had been used to keep Two Regulus missiles, and they weren't carrying Regulus missiles anymore. So when they decided to go looking for this uh, Russian sub uh, K128, I think 129, they they found themselves a submarine with this enormous open space, which they called the Bat Cave, and they put the most powerful computer in the world at the time on board there, and a bunch of other scientists and Halibut being a a traditional submarine or any kind of submarine and our most advanced take take a Seawolf class Virginia class sub I don't know what the crush depth on those is I bet the test depth is somewhere around two thousand feet and and I bet it would probably make it to three or four thousand feet but it's not going to 12 so halibut had a general area and then they had to swim this this search pattern much like what we've been doing for the last couple of days but halibut did it for weeks if not months it was towing a uh, uh, a, a sled, basically, unmanned, unpressurized sled, and it was keeping the sled about thirty feet off the floor of the ocean and towing it. And here's the thing that really is impressive about that: is that they weren't looking at the images because the Talbot's up here, you know, let's just say a thousand feet deep, and it's got a it's got a, a cable that's going down to a to a, the ocean floor, which is at sixteen thousand feet, so fourteen thousand feet and then long as well. So it's towing this thing, and you think, okay, well, when they go over it, they'll see the, you know, they'll see it on TV. But there weren't TV cameras on it. It was taking photographs, which means they do a search pattern, and things click, 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 taking pictures. and They have to winch this thing in, take the film out of it, run it into the dark room, which they had room for in the Batcave, develop the pictures in a in a dark room. Watch them coming out of the uh, emulsion, the or emulsifier, or whatever, the fixer, and all that stuff blank 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 nothing but sea floor and then finally after several weeks if not a month or two here's k-129 and then they had to record obviously where they were when that picture was taken and then they found it okay so there you go um this whole this whole thing is that is that the the soviet sub was found because we have these systems on the bottom of the ocean we've had them since the mid-60s and i'm Really, quite confident that they have not gotten less sophisticated over time. Um, the analysis of the scorpion and the thresher and K one twenty nine was done by a navy acoustics expert. Expert, and he got he just basically pulled the tapes. And this is how these calculations were made. And and the story of what happened on K one twenty nine is really really astonishing. It's worth seeing that episode if you can do it, or or listen to it on the podcast because. Might as well. So, I'm familiar with with the, the basics of this whole thing, um, and I'm also familiar with things like aircraft construction. And I happen to know uh, the the greatest aircraft designer ever ever lived, and his brother, who's arguably the best pilot who ever lived, Mr. Velvet Arm himself. So the Rutan brothers, and I've been around these people long enough to have. A, some kind of insight into this I've, I've flown an airplane that was constructed by an individual it was an experimental airplane long easy loved it loved it but it was not certified and that's why i was able to afford the airplane because if they had gone to the trouble of at the expense of certifying it it wouldn't have been a forty thousand thirty thousand dollar airplane it would have been a three hundred thousand dollar airplane a three million dollar airplane so i've flown experimental aircraft and I think this is one of the most uh, American rules and regulations that are left in society. In the United States, you can build and fly your own airplane as long as it is registered as an experimental aircraft. It doesn't mean you can do it without an inspection, but you can do it without certification, and those are two completely different things. In the case of experimental aircraft, your legal and, and, and certainly moral obligation is that it has to have the word experimental clearly on the inside of the, of the cockpit uh, so that the pilot and the passenger, and I don't think you can have an experimental plane with more than, no, you can. So every, every passenger has to not only see that it says experimental in big letters, but there also has to be a placard that says this aircraft is not certified by the FAA and it's not blah, 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 it's home built, uh, you know, assume your own risk, right? So of all of the, I think somebody said there are nine subs that are capable, man-carrying subs that are capable of getting down to 12,000 feet, 13,000 feet. And eight of them are certified and one of them is not. And the one that was not was the Titan. So for the sake of this discussion, I'm going to call it experimental to the same degree that experimental aircraft are experimental. Uh, John Pershing says, and they cannot carry passengers for hire, right? Correct. You cannot use an experimental airplane for commercial purposes. Uh, there are other restrictions. It has to pass an inspection from an FAA inspector. It has to come out and say, "Well, nothing appears to be." I'm shaking the wing, and it's not. You know, it's not held on by duct tape. So, and then you have to fly 40 hours within a mile or two of your home airport, and you can't be over. Um, you know, the rest of this stuff. Um, And Ed Smith here says, I have to ask, what's it with billionaires and the wreck of the Titanic? The ship sank. Get over it. Well, Ed, uh, a lot of people didn't get over it, uh, and I'll get to that, too. Uh, And I think there's a good reason why they didn't get over it. Um, So back to the Titan design. Carbon fiber has been used in airplanes uh, for quite a while now. I'm not aware that it was... I, I was completely... Surprised to hear, after uh, the sub was missing, but before we discovered it was was gone, um, Ed says, uh, tell it to all the girls that cried. Uh, uh, let's not get into that. We'll deal with that in a minute. Um, but the Titan was, was a carbon fiber cylinder with titanium end caps. And carbon fiber, to my knowledge, has not been used for deep diving submersibles. And you have to ask yourself if all of the, others, the, the other eight subs that were capable of that kind of depth, they're all certified, this one isn't. That alone doesn't mean it's a problem, but if all the other ones are made out of titanium or, or, or high strength steel, and this one's made out of carbon fiber, you have to ask yourself some questions about this. And Capicinato came up with the word that I was thinking of, and that word is brittle. Um, in a, I've been on board a nuclear sub I've been 600 feet below the surface of the Pacific Ocean doing 20 knots it's, you, you might as well be in a, in a Denny's there's no way to know that you're moving at all and there's no way to know you're underwater um, and at 20 knots which was on the repeater there so everybody could see it uh, the, the USS Pasadena wasn't even breaking a sweat it was just just a walk but when you take a conventionally powered sub whose operational depth, for the sake of the argument, is around 1,000 feet, that's, that's generally close enough. What they'll often do for, for uh, new sub... And by the way, it, it was always submariners. I've heard submariners. Now I'm going to go with submariners just because of submarine. What they would often do is, before they would dive the boat, they would take a string and they would tape it to the inside of the hull so that it ran across the entire compartment taut. Really taut, right? Tight as they could get it, tape it up there like that, and then they'd start their dive. And when um, and when they got down to operational depth, they'd bring these new submariners. Uh, submarine Submar- oh, I was going to go with submariners. They bring these new submersitors into this compartment, and what they would see is that the string, which had formerly been taut, had a huge bow in it. It was just it was just hanging loose. And the reason it was hanging loose is because the pressure had actually shrunken the size of the sub that much so that this formerly taut string has now got a significant amount of, of slack in it because the hull is being pressed that, that hard. Reason I bring this up is because steel is is relatively flexible. It doesn't seem like it if you're about to get hit in the face with a piece of it, but it is actually relatively flexible. I don't believe carbon fiber is. And so I'm not qualified to talk about, well, I'm not qualified to talk about anything if we really wanna be serious about it, but I can have an opinion on everything. That's all that matters to me. Um, So carbon fiber, I'll put this as simply as I can, if carbon fiber was a good choice to be going down to those kind of depths, it seems to me that other people with bigger budgets like governments would be building submarines out of carbon fiber, but they didn't. And that's telling me something. Um, They found uh, the carbon fiber cylinder with just a, there's nothing on the damn Titan. It's It's just a pressure hull. There's not a hatch on it, I'll get to that too. Um, and from what they found of, of, the, of the wreckage of the debris, my understanding is it's still relatively new, but they found at least one of the titanium end caps, which means that, what, again, from what appears to be obvious now, but it, it seems extremely likely that what happened was that the carbon fiber cylinder collapsed that failed and blew the end caps off of that thing instantaneously Uh, and so now we get into the whole business of um, uh, of this particular company or at least of the CEO uh, who who died on the on the sub and I don't mean to impugn I certainly don't mean to speak uh, ill of the dead but there are lessons to be learned here, and we need to talk about them. Um, so, his attitude was very concerning to me, and I knew nothing about the guy prior to, um, prior to the, uh, the news of the sub went missing. I found out about it went missing on Sunday. I found out about it on Monday. Hang on a second. I want to get this right here. Okay, so Stockton Rush is his name. of OceanGate, that's his company. Now, I, I, I want to be really clear about this. There is a great deal about Stockton Rush from the very limited amount i know known from him, but I've been looking at nothing else for the last three days, like many people. There's an awful lot about Stockton Rush that I admire very, very, very much and should be applauded. He's a, an entrepreneur. He's a, He's an engineer. He is providing a service that, people will pay for, and he's running a business, all of those things. We'll get to that aspect of it, too. Uh, it is not a trivial thing to build a submarine that has made, I think they've made something like 40 successful dives to the Titanic before this one. Um, and so that, all of that stuff is, is, I think, to be applauded. And just the fact that you're willing to do it in this day and age is impressive to me. There's nobody who died on that sub, was not aware of the risk. Nobody on that sub was unaware of how dangerous this was with that said there was a lot about stockton that appears to me to in retrospect appears to me to be troubling and troubled a bunch of other people too the first example is he decided to build this thing out of carbon fiber to save money and it's a lot cheaper than titanium and so he assumed that this would work and that assumption ended up killing him, but it did work for 40 dives or something like that. The problem with carbon fiber too is it's extremely difficult to detect uh, a fault in in steel. You'll generally develop a crack on a on a pressurizer or something. You some microscopic crack, they get bigger. Carbon fiber starts to fail. It doesn't crack. It delaminates and that will destroy the strength and that's the end of the sub and you as well but there's it's very difficult to detect these kind of things so anyway, he built this submarine and again about the things about it I admire at least theoretically, I admire the fact that he just got a piece of paper out and said what is the simplest thing that we need here, what do we need he's going to try and run a business taking people down to view the Titanic and I'll get to the Titanic but what do we need, and what he came up with basically is we need a, a shell that doesn't crush. Anything else about that is relatively simple. We just need, we just need um, a, a, a shell. Uh, uh, Miles S. Uh, probably came a little bit late. Were they aware? Did they ask the, Oh, I'm sorry. Did they ask the right questions? Yes. And they had to sign a waiver that apparently in three places said this can be dangerous or fatal. And by the way, uh, I don't know how clear it was in the waiver, but once you get into the, the, that vehicle, you are no longer in the injured category. Once you get into that uh, vessel and they bolt you in, you're no longer going to be injured on this. You're either going to come back 100 percent happy, healthy, or you're going to die. Um, so they were aware of the risk, and 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 people are saying they should not, they should not allow people to dive on that. They shouldn't allow these kind. Of, no, they should absolutely should allow them. This is this idea. That we're going to regulate adventure and, and, and pushing the envelope and all the rest of it. And, and personal choice. If the guys, it was their money, they wanted to go, so they went. And if somebody wants to get paid to do that, I think that's great. That's not the problem. The problem for me is not him running this company. I admire him for running the company. I admire him for having a, a, an economic model. I admire him for developing and designing his own vehicle. I admire him for being on board the vehicle. I admire him for all of those things, but there are things about him that I do not admire, and prominent among those was a fairly, from the interviews I've seen, a fairly cavalier attitude towards risk assessment. Um, he he f- f- quite famously won the sub went missing had been asked, well, why don't you bring people in who know what they're doing here? In other words, there are tens of thousands of, of uh, former submariners in the U.S. Navy who are out there, and some of them are watching the show right now. And any number of engineers who have designed and built both nuclear submarines and deep diving submersibles, and he didn't, he didn't hire those people. And in an interview, he said, "Well, I didn't want—I didn't want a bunch of uh, 50-year-old. I I didn't want my team to look like a bunch of 50-year-old white guys. I wanted people that I could inspire, or who were inspirable. Now, hiring young people and getting them excited and inspired about about deep ocean exploration or aviation—that's a grand idea. That's a—that's a marvelous idea. But you don't put them." There, there, there. That is an apprenticeship. That's not a staff. That's an apprenticeship. And, uh, Aesop said woke killed him. No, I don't think it was woke exactly. It, I don't think he was going. I, I saw pictures of the of the company, and there were a lot of young people there, and I believe they are all white, but they were just younger. Um, it wasn't so much even that he was going for diversity. It wasn't like you know here is a company that looks like America. He just wanted, I guess, young people, so to that degree, it was um, uh, politically motivated. But here's the thing I also suspect, and what I suspect is, I suspect that you can get a, um, a 25-year-old uh, engineering student considerably more economically than you can get a top-level uh, deep-diving engineer in terms of cost. So I'm thinking that one of the reasons he talked about having his, his highly inspirable young staff of people who are excited is because when you do have a bunch of young people who are excited, they'll work on anything forever for enough money just to keep being able to eat, you know, ramen. And you can save yourself a lot of money that way. I suspect that's what drove this business. And I, there's a lot about Stockton that that to me was immediately transparently false. And, and this worried me. And, and chief among them was when he was talking about um, Ocean Gate his company and diving on the Titanic he was constantly saying things like well we're really we're just going down there mostly we're going down there to do the science we're, g- we're going to dive repeatedly on the Titanic we'll be able to me- it's, it's, a, it's an artificial reef we'll be able to measure the growth of biological life we'll be able to document the the rapid and accelerating degradation of the wreck and and, and he kept and he, and he said verbatim it's not that these guys aren't really tourists I think of them as crew and and that is transparently false that's just transparently false. The people on that submarine were tourists in the same way that the people who fly on Blue Origin or Virgin Galactic are tourists. And if you try to justify them in any way other than tourism, then you're not being honest with the people that you're that that are interviewing you and and that tells me that on some level you're ashamed of it. This is the thing that I find uh, among other things, alarming about this this uh, late individual who, again, has a great deal to be admired. But if you can't come out and say, oh, of course they're tourists. This is a tourism business. This is adventure tourism. They pay me a quarter of a million dollars and I take them down to see the Titanic through a window this big. They won't get as good a view as as as, they, as you could get on the 4K images that have been taken under perfect conditions with much more advanced equipment. They're not going to see anything like that kind of clarity, but they will see it with their own eyes. And for people who say, well, that doesn't matter, is certainly not calling you a liar. I am saying that for certain people, being in the presence of history is a mystical experience. It, it is for me. I started on my history... Uh, love of history. When I went to Gettysburg, and I didn't go particularly. I didn't want to go to Gettysburg. I was in Harrisburg for my brother's wedding. I had a day, about an hour drive or something. Drove down to Gettysburg, and as I was getting out of the car, and I don't want anybody misunderstand this. As I was getting out of the car and walking up to the um, to the welcome center, was by myself, and as as I was getting up towards the welcome center, I I, I kind of saw in my mind's eye like a regiment of Union troops just marching down the same hill that I was going up. I'm not saying I actually saw them. I'm saying I felt them. And I'm also saying that this is undoubtedly my imagination. But at the time, I said to myself also, what they did here is a lot more important than me being here. And since time is constantly fleeting and flowing, they made a bigger impression on this space than I did. But nevertheless, when I went back uh, several years later, my dad bought me, took me there and bought me a private a private tour with a guide, which was great. And by this time, I'd known I knew everything about that battlefield. So I'm standing by the rock where the sniper, the Confederate sniper, al- allegedly had been shot. But he'd actually been shot somewhere else. And the and Matthew Brady's team had dragged him here for a for a better angle. And it's a iconic shot of a boulder and dead body lying there. And the guide says, "You're probably familiar with this." And I turn around. I was like, "There's the boulder." I mean, it's so obviously, it's a extremely distinctive feature. And I look, and I say, "Holy crap!" There's the boulder, and I walk out to it, and, that mean, and I'm looking down. And it means that guy, that dead that, that Confederate, was lying was lying right here. And when you feel that, for some people, you have a a near religious experience. Uh, you you are not filled with amazement, as my friend um, uh, Jim says. I, I was not just amazed. I was awed. I was in awe when I found out when I was trying to find the mule shoe, or the bloody angle at Uh, at Spotsylvania, and I suddenly realized, no, the reason you can't see it is because you're standing right on it. Uh, That filled me with awe. And when Glenn Beck gave me a chance to hold uh, the compass, the dividers that George Washington kept on him, and feel the little depression where his thumb had eroded away solid steel that this thing was made out of, because that was his worry stone, that made an impression, holding those metal dividers in my hand George Washington had held in his hand for decades, worrying about whether there's going to be a United States or not. For some people, there is a there is a a spiritual it's a spiritual event. Seeing it with your own eyes. David Booty says he's seen the cops of trees, the high water mark of the Confederacy. I've seen him too, Dave. Right on the angle of the stone wall where t- where Pickett's charge was broken on the on the third day of Gettysburg and was the high water mark of the Confederacy. That's as far north as they got, and it's also, that was their peak success. Um, Rucha says, this is a relic. Some magic is too powerful to sustain, so we imbue objects with it, allowing them to take the strain that we cannot. Wow, Dr. Strange. Allowing them to take the strain that we cannot. Hmm, that's a profoundly good point. Um, and uh, Lady Hawk says, interestingly, I've been to the bottom of the USS Constitution. You can't do that anymore. Uh, the fact that the USS Constitution exists is amazing. I'd love to go aboard the Constitution. I'd love to go aboard Nautilus in, in Groton. Because history talks to me that way. Because these things really did happen, which is getting us towards the whole Titanic thing and the allure of this and why they went in the first place. I'm not saying that there is a I'm not I'm not going to tell you that there's a metaphysical explanation for this, but I'm also not going to tell you that there isn't. For some people, the power that these artifacts and and places have is overwhelming because on some level the people who are having that experience have the imagination and the interest to know enough about that place or thing. So that it 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 connects you to something that actually happened. When I was holding that that pair of dividers, it wasn't that I was holding dividers, and it wasn't even really that I was holding on to Washington's dividers. What I was doing, I'm realizing this in real time. When I was holding, when Glenn Beck handed me those those steel dividers that belonged to George Washington, that he used for decades to, to worry his way through, you know, America. When I was holding that, it wasn't like, hey, this is Washington's dividers. What it was, was it was proof that Washington was real. That's what it was. I hadn't realized that until just this moment now. But that's what it was. This means that George Washington was real. There really was a George Washington. And everything that Washington did is encapsulated in this piece of steel that I'm connecting to. I am. I have my hands on the same thing that George Washington had his hands on. He was a real guy. These are his dividers. I'm holding on to them, and that is an incredible honor and an incredible rush. Gettysburg has that power. Uh, I think in one of my essays I mentioned this, uh, where you can say, you know, there are, you can mention a name of, a, of an island, or a name of a small town in America, and it has no meaning whatsoever. But if you say Guadalcanal, Iwo Jima, Tarawa, Saipan, Okinawa, those words mean more than Vanuatu or you know Fiji because of what happened there, because of the human drama that happened there. And if you can, if you have the imagination to understand from reading of history the basics of what happened there for some people, connecting themselves to that event, not to not to take something from it, I think, but to put something there. That's how I feel about it. Is is it's is, 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 it's an absolutely transcendental experience. The Apollo eleven command modules in the Air and Space Museum in Washington, that's the thing that, that took us to the moon and back. And I'm touching it. I shook Buzz Aldrin, I shook Buzz Aldrin's hand. Uh, I don't know if I talked about this I, know. I talked about it recently I don't know if it was on Stratosphere Lounge I can't remember honestly smaller than I thought it would be and he was in a big hurry but I shook his hand and, and the second I finished shaking his hand it was at the Miami Planetarium I remember exactly where I was standing just outside of the box office shook his hand and, and he left and I was I know, 16, 17 and I'm, and I'm thinking that hand that I just shook has been on the ladder of the lunar module that hand that i just shook was the hand that was doing the salute in the picture the fact that i shook buzz aldrin's hand means that buzz aldrin is a real guy and that what he did is is real ed smith says i'm seeking religious experiences it's a, it, you know it, it's an interesting observation ed because or edward because i'm not seeking i'm not seeking them so much as, as I want them to find me. I know that sounds bizarre, but that's it. I'm not going around looking for these experiences. I I I'm, I'm I like to read a lot about a lot of things that really happened, and some things really do move me. When they found the wreck of the USS Johnston, hero of Taffy Three, I was. Profoundly moved it was the deepest shipwreck ever discovered. Until a year later, when they found the wreck of the USS Samuel B. Roberts, which was also lost during the Battle of Taffy Three, not far from there, which is now the record for the deepest shipwreck ever found. Titanic's at 12,000 feet. Samuel B. Roberts, I want to say, is at almost 20. Um, but if you you have to allow these, you don't have to do anything if you allow this connection to be made you'll never you'll never get it out of your bloodstream you will become a history uh fanatic and i became a history fanatic because of the emotional experience i had starting at gettysburg and then at every other civil war battlefield i've been to and i've been to 15 of them Um, so now we come to uh, uh, yet another layer of this thing the The commentary over the last several days is pretty much binary. Virtually all of it is binary. It's either those poor people, I'm praying for them, or serves them right, the rich bastards. Think of what we could have done with that money back here. They said that about the Apollo program, too. Think about what we could have done with that money. Well, what we could have done with that money is we could have built more housing projects that are the worst places in the world and were bulldozed down because they were so un. Unimaginably violent, dangerous, and horrible places to live. We could have done that. We could have done a lot more giveaways. We could have done a lot more other things. But in the case of the Apollo program, you can at least make the case that you should have spent that money on social benefits. In the case of these people, you don't have that luxury, because what these people who are talking about these damn billionaires and their and their million dollar adventures and you know and you know and blah 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 blah, they shouldn't be allowed to have that much money and they shouldn't be allowed to go dive on the Titanic. we rules against. The, blah, 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 blah. Okay, fine, fine, fine. These people are doing exactly what you do. They're just doing it on a different scale. When you decide you want to go someplace, if you want to go to Disney World, or if you want to go to um, a movie, you are deciding what you're going to do with your own money. And that's the case with with these people that died. They were spending their own money, and the guy who was running the company was running a business. They were all aware of the risk. And you don't get to say, well, you know, you you know, all those rich because I saw a lot of this, those rich people deserve to die, basically. You know? I'm and several people kinda of, I'm happy they did. Good riddance. Okay, you know, if that's the way you want to live your life, if you're if you're just so full of, of envy and bitterness and resentment and uh, and and self loathing for your own sense of failure, then you know, rock on. But my opinion on this is how much money do you have to make in order to become an evil person? You know, where's the cutoff point? I'd like to know to be have be handy information um, to have. What, what is the dollar value beyond which you become an evil, horrible person and below which you're a virtuous, uh, you know, good person? Where is that dollar value? There is no, there is no dividing line. It's just plain envy. So... So these people use their own money. I've heard that um, OceanGate took $450,000, $500,000 in PPP um, loans during the pandemic to pay their, uh, their staff. Uh, my wife has questioned me about this several times and I, I still think I made the right decision. Uh, I got offered that through my bank four times during the course of the pandemic. Uh, was offered, essentially, zero interest loans, which from the beginning were said, if you can't pay those back, then they'll be forgiven. And I desperately needed the money, and, and money's always tight here, uh, but I didn't take those loans. And I didn't take them because, because I didn't think that I qualified for them. it's free money. That's what it was. They were just handing out free money. And everybody was taking it. And I probably could have easily, easily, easily gotten $60,000, $70,000 that I didn't take uh, and would have solved a lot of our financial problems. But I didn't take it because, despite the fact that the pandemic was closing businesses left and right, it wasn't closing my business. My business was doing just fine. And since my business was doing fine, I didn't see any moral reason to take money that I knew I would not be able to pay back. I just—they offered. They, it's not like I went down and asked, "Is it available?" I got on four separate occasions messages from my bank saying, "You know, you qualify for these PPP loans," and and um, and there's been a lot of times when I've had uh, regrets that I that I don't have the money, but I've never regretted not taking the money. Um, this guy the money okay virtually everybody did as donald trump like i said during that debate with hillary if it's there and it's legal then okay you know there it is uh, donald trump you didn't pay this much in taxes no of course i didn't and nobody else does either N- hillary doesn't either i pay the legal minimum of what i'm allowed and and everybody does that I bring up the PPP thing only because I was trying to figure out, is there any public money involved with OceanGate? And other than that, there is not. And that went out to everybody, so I'm not going to call that a government-subsidized loan. He used his money to build a vehicle, to get in touch with something that had emotional appeal over him. You don't build a submarine, put together a crew, and go through all the trouble that Stockton went through without having a strong, strong, strong emotional reason for doing that. And his emotional reason is not because he wants to make money, because a guy with that kind of initiative, that kind of sales ability, that kind of engineering talent, all of that stuff, he could have made a lot of money doing any number of things that he wanted to do. But Stockton Rush decided he wanted to... Stockton Rush decided to do what most of us want to do. Stockton Rush decided to do what I've been able to do, for almost 20 years now, thanks to the generosity of you people who are watching now, Stockton Rush wanted to get paid to do the thing that he loved. And if you can do that, if you can pull that off, it doesn't mean you have to go diving on the Titanic. If you can get paid to do what you want to do anyway, what you would be, do, what you would be paying to do, then you have hit the jackpot of life. And I haven't been to work in 15 years. I put in a lot of hours. I put in never less than 80 hours a week. That's a great joke about entrepreneurialism, right? It's a, Entrepreneurs are, are guys who don't want to work a 40-hour week, so they work an 80-hour week. Um, but he was, he, he, found a, a, he found a financial system that allowed him to, to continue to live. And then, I don't know how rich he got. It didn't sound like he was making a ton of money. But he, he got paid to do what he wanted to do. And what he wanted to do was he wanted to go down to the Titanic, which brings us to our next uh, level of of uh, of complexity in this entire story. So, what is it about the Titanic? One of the people that were interviewed—I don't remember who it was—in the last three or four days said um, said there. Are, for many people, there are three things in the ocean: whales, sharks, and the Titanic. I thought that was I thought that was well said. Um, so what is it about this ship? There's no other wreck like it. There are many, many wrecks out there, and there are, if I had the ability to, to, to do this, there are many wrecks that I would rather go see than the Titanic. But that's, and I'm not even sure that's true, to be honest with you. The thing about the Titanic, uh, Mobile Motus is the Titanic reeks of old English anglophilia. No, it doesn't. And I'm not, look, I'm not trying to disagree with you personally. I'm, I'm, I want to disagree with that opinion, okay? It, the Titanic was not about a bunch of rich people going down or rich people getting into lifeboats while while the third-class passengers were locked below. The third-class passengers locked below is a big, big part of the story. But that's not why Titanic is Titanic. What makes Titanic the Titanic were the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cases where men put their wives and children into lifeboats and watch them get lowered down into a future that they weren't going to have that's what the titanic is about it's happened on other ships but it never happened to that degree and it was its maiden voyage and it was the biggest ship in the world and it was all of it all of it but essentially titanic is about about men titanic is about women and children first that's why people dive on the titanic david Boone is shouting saying the third class passengers were never locked below deck fair enough not arguing. I, I'm, I'm convinced that you're you're right when you say that's probably an urban myth. All I'll say is they had a little further to, to travel. But in any event, that's not what it's about. It, it, and mobile Motors is unsinkable. That's part of it too. The hubris of it. Now that kind of brings us back to ocean yet Again, the hubris of it. Right. The the the, the kind of dismissiveness about it. Oh no, I can't sink the Titanic. It's too big to sink. No, no, no. This carbon fiber sub. No, it's never been tested. But it'll it'll hold because I've done the math the but the titanic is about about the titanic took i I highly recommend this if you have the time um online uh, on youtube hang on a second okay if you have the time uh i cannot recommend this highly enough and you really do need to do this in in real time you can find on YouTube uh, an, a recently upgraded version of the Titanic sinking in real time. It takes just a little over two hours, if I remember correctly. And if you watch it in real time, you need to invest two hours. You, can't, you have the ability to fast forward, but if you do, you're missing the point. For the first hour, there is no obvious problem. The, they're down by the bow. There's no. I mean, you're looking at. You, if you watch an hour, the first hour of the Titanic sinking in real time, it's a boring hour, but you got to sit through that whole hour because if you don't, you won't appreciate the scale of what happened. That's why it's interesting to see it in real time. So there's a whole hour where it's like, oh, okay, we got a hole in the boat. That's, you know, that's going to be something to deal with when we get back to port, but that's going to cost a lot of money to fix. And then in the second hour, Things start to happen and then they happen faster and faster and faster and the, and the catastrophe accelerates exponentially so that the final, there's more drama in the final three, five minutes of the Titanic by far than there were in the other two hours of, the, of, of that event. But the reason people want to go to Titanic is because, is because of the women and children first, is because of guys like Wallace Hartley and the six or seven people who were with him. Wallace Hartley was a was a young healthy man who had a good chance as good a chance to survive as anybody else. And Wallace Hartley when the ship was well on its way down, when you watch it in real time you'll realize that when Wallace Hartley who was the band leader on board Titanic, when Wallace Hartley said to his fellow musicians, "Hey, everybody man it's there it's man every man for himself, but I'm going outside to play music to calm people down." And I believe he was a violinist. And so when Wallace Hartley went out there, every single one of the remaining members of the band went with him. And those people played music to calm the terror, the raw terror of it. That's why people dive on Titanic, is because of the terror of it. Unlike the people, this is turning into a really interesting discussion, if I do say so myself. Unlike the people on board the Titan, for whom that particular spot of ocean is instantaneous middle of a sentence no worries no fears no oh my god nothing just in the middle of a sentence gone but the reason they went to titanic is because titanic was the opposite of that titanic was at least a solid hour of okay now we have to decide who's going to live and who's going to die here and and when people say things like anglophilic uh you know like almost like a fetishistic kind of thing i'll I'll, if that's what it is i'll plead guilty to that that there I think most I think that there I think that what happened on the Titanic has the effect it has on people because I think it was one of the one of the most arrogant and hubristic and at the same time absolutely and arguably one of the most noble things that have happened to human beings ever it's all there all of it the cowardice is there the heroism is there the hubris is there The the hope all of it it's all there and and when you see I have not had this experience and I and I even if I was given a chance to do it on a highly rated sub I'd give this serious thought I would much much much, I feel I'd be I'd be a hundred times more worried about going to see the Titanic than I would be about going into orbit as far as my personal safety is concerned but if you're looking through that little porthole and the bow of that ship comes out of the Merc that's that's a total solar eclipse guys that's that's it um, that is uh, that bow of that ship and and by the way, we had that experience when Bob Ballard found the uh, the Titanic in 1986 by the way I think that the reason Bob Ballard found the Titanic was he went out to look for a nuclear weapon that had been dropped uh, We had a nuclear an H bomb fell out of a bomber and Basically, it's kind of like the cover story they had for Project Azorian. Oh, no, we're not going out. To, no, no, we're just going to put, scoop up magnesium nodules off the bottom of the ocean. No, you're not. You're building the Glomar Explorer to go out there and, and grab a Russian ballistic missile sub and bring it up to the surface inside the ship secretly. Ballard said, we're going out to find the Titanic. We're going to give it our best shot. That's not what he was doing. He went out there to find the, those missing nuclear weapons, and he found them. And he found them quickly enough that he had time to go look for the Titanic. But that was not what his initial mission was. That was the cover story. But he found it. And when, when you first saw the bow, my point is, you see the bow coming out of the Merck, I think it was discovered in 86, maybe, something like that. That's 13 years before the movie, before you know James Cameron had the artistic insight to connect the story to the bow of that ship. He, yes, Woods Hole, he took Alvin down there. Alvin is, uh, I mean you haven't heard Alvin much in the news lately, but Alvin is a, is a, uh, essentially it's a bathysphere, it's a, it's a, I believe, and I don't know, no, I don't think Alvin is, has unlimited depth because the the deepest part of the world is in the, um, the Challenger Deep in the Marianas Trench, it's in excess of 20,000 feet deep, it might be 26,000, something like that, and first people ever to explore that was a a Frenchman and an American naval officer on board a bathysphere called Trieste and Trieste looked a little bit like a submarine but essentially Trieste was just a extraordinarily strong sphere and Trieste I don't believe had maneuvering ability at all they took Trieste out put it in the water gave it negative buoyancy it took them six seven eight hours or something to get to the bottom Everything above Trieste has just got to do with ballast and instrumentation and lighting and all the rest of it. It's just a sphere. It's a tiny little sphere that these guys are in. So there are very few vehicles that can get down there. I think at this point I might just mention that uh, James Cameron made my favorite movie, which wasn't Titanic, which was Aliens. And James Cameron has turned into a loathsome person in terms of my value set. James Cameron is a multi-multi-millionaire who... who loves to bash capitalism and who lives a life of luxury in the United States while making movies about us being nothing more than, you know, blue baby killing murderers. So I don't particularly like James Cameron. But when James Cameron decided to repeat that feat in a submarine, he built himself a, a submersible. When he went down there standing up, or at least standing, sitting and standing the same way that uh, the Apollo astronauts were. That's an interesting point. By the way, Brian now points out that the ballast was gasoline. You can't put air in there because it's going to crush gasoline is a liquid it's uncompressible but it weighs less than water so wait a minute more weighs, yeah weighs less than water right more i actually i lost that but in any event they had to take a liquid for for a depth control um so anyway when james cameron did that i thought well whatever i think about him politically you got to admire the balls on that guy because that is the deadliest environment that humans have ever been in, by far. And he, 35,000 feet, good Lord, thank you P7. 35,000 feet, so three times the depth of Titanic. And he built his own sub and went down there by himself and, and that takes guts. As my opinion of James Cameron has continued to fall, my opinion of Tom Cruise has continued to rise. I remember when he was jumping on the couch on Oprah, I thought, oh my God, I can't stand this guy. And every year goes by, I like him better and better. But what turned the corner for me was when I found out he owns and flies a P-51 Mustang. Those are, those are um, persnickety little beasts. And the fact that he was flying that made me reevaluate the guy. So people go to Titanic to be where Wallace Hartley was. And if you watch this thing, the Titanic sinking in real time, you'll realize that if you read the history of Titanic, if you read Night to Remember um, by uh, Mr. Lord, I forget his first name, uh, you know about Wallace Hartley in the band, but if you see it happening in real time, you realize that he stepped outside with those musicians in the last 10 or 15 minutes of this catastrophe when people started screaming. One of the, Walter Lord, thank you. One of the most poignant things in a night to remember which was the first real serious book about the Titanic by Walter Lord it's, it's it it's not dated I, I read it again recently it, it holds up perfectly um, Walter uh, Walter Lord who wrote the book 60s maybe maybe earlier no it must have been earlier in any event, Um, of all the things that are in that book, the one that never ceases to make my skin crawl is Titanic survivors said that the one thing that they couldn't handle was going to a baseball game or a football game because whenever somebody hit a home run or scored a touchdown, that sound of tens of thousands of people screaming at the same time took them immediately back to the Titanic. So think about that for a minute, right? That that sound, that roar when you're at a really high really high pressure heavy stakes football game or baseball game and your team hits the home, winning home run or the or the winning touchdown, that roar. That's what the survivors of the Titanic couldn't bear because that's what they heard. You know, there were 1500 people in that water. And um, and they were all screaming at the same time and they weren't just screaming when they got in the water once that once that list really started to develop like I said watch it in real time nothing happens nothing happens hey wait a minute and then it's over like that boom but when that when that bow is really going under and it's clear that this thing's going to sink there is nothing but screaming by th- hundreds and hundreds of people just screaming all the time in terror that makes a psychic impression I think on our collective unconscious. I don't know whether such a a thing exists, it's just the most illustrative example I can think of. So just think about that for a minute, just close your eyes and and imagine that sound, right? That, That sound and then you're in a lifeboat and you look up and you see this astonishing spectacle, the largest thing ever built that moves, going down with all of that screaming and terror and, and and the occasional gunshots and all the rest of it. And by the way, there's another video out there on the Titanic, and I don't have the link to it, although I'm sure somebody will will, will trot it out for us here. That showed it didn't show the Titanic sinking in real time. It showed the Titanic sinking under authentic lighting conditions. Half of the people who survived the disaster said that Titanic broke in half and half of them said no it went down in one piece think about that 300 400 people swearing literally in some cases swearing under uh, in in case of investigations that it went down in one piece and another 300 people said no it broke in half how do you explain that? that's a lot of witnesses how do you explain it? this guy did a recreation of what the sinking of the Titanic looked like actually looked like on a moonless night when the generator goes out on the titanic it is pitch black out there you can't see any details all you can see is a is a black cutout outline of this of the stern rising against the starfield there is no light there when when the titanic goes out when the electricity fails on the titanic in the titanic movie it's lit by blue light like as as if there was a you know a bright moon there or something and obviously cameron has to do that he can't shoot a movie in pitch black he could save some money but it wouldn't have been so dramatic, you know, you shoot that in a closet. But if you look at the Titanic sinking under actual lighting conditions, it is pitch black out there. It is dark, dark, dark. So you're hearing these screams coming out of the darkness. You you don't see the individual people. You're barely, you're not even really able to make out anything about the ship. It's just this looming, enormous mountain of darkness against the stars, and and coming from it are the screams of hundreds of people who know that they're going to die within a few seconds. Which, as I say again, I'm quite convinced was not the case for uh, for the, uh, the five people on board the, uh, the submersible. And that's a blessing because there's no question that the Challenger astronauts survived the explosion. And there's no question that the Columbia astronauts knew they were in trouble for at least 20 seconds before before their their lives ended. In, in the case of the Titan, they're excited and happy. There's not a moment of, oh my God, no, no, That just things don't feel that way at that pressure. They either survive or they're gone instantly. So there's no moment of, oh my God, there's no looking at each other. I remember thinking when we were hearing the so-called banging noises, I thought, well, I'll tell you what, um, what we're likely to get out of this If the the thing hadn't imploded, there was a reasonable chance, especially when the banging occurred, which had nothing to do with them, apparently. um, There was a reasonable chance that the the submersible had gotten tangled up in in either some of the rigging or the the wreckage, or one uh, earlier sub had gotten trapped between the propeller and the hull and were trapped for half an hour, and the guy talking about that experience back in 2009 just started crying because he said, I I knew I was going to die down there, and none of this happened to them what I was going to say is, if they had been trapped there and that the banging was real, then yes, it would have been pitch black if they'd lost electronics or their electrical system. Apparently, the procedure for Ocean Gate was to, in order to save energy, was they would just turn off everything and just sink. And uh, I read an account that said that the only light inside the pressure vessel on the way down, and there are no seats, by the way, and there are no there's no padding, you're just, it's like you're sitting next to people shoulder to shoulder in a closet. He said the only light they used was, um, were these glow sticks, you know, that little pale green light. So when, it, when there was an, a, a, an apparent possibility that they had gotten themselves wedged into the, in the wreckage, I thought to myself, well, chances are pretty good that we're going to eventually recover a lot of goodbye messages. I'm thinking, do they have anything to write on on the way down? Because the guys on the curse all wrote letters to their wives. They were down there for days before they died. And I realized, no, they wouldn't have to write anything. They'll have their phones with them, undoubtedly, right? They'll be able to make their own goodbye messages. We'll probably end up seeing all these things and so on. Um, but fortunately for them, uh, that didn't happen. They, 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 They weren't scared. They weren't worried. They were excited happy. That's how lights went out for them. Not I, I, I'm utterly convinced there was not a moment where they went, hey, wait a minute, or, or hey, we got a problem. It's just right in the middle of the conversation, gone. Um, so, so uh, Aesop's retreat says that the Titan goes down in a spiral slowly. Uh, well, that makes sense, actually, because a spiral descent would keep you more or less over the same location. Um, now, uh, some other things here um, are, are in play. Uh, first of all, the banging noises. Obviously, it didn't have anything to do with, uh, with the Titan. We know that now because the evidence is pretty much overwhelming that the, that the, the uh, submersible imploded instantly some significant distance above the, sur- uh, the, the um, bottom of the seabed. So where did these banging noises come from? A lot of things could be banging in the ocean. Parts of Titanic could be falling. Titanic is falling apart, and it's falling apart rapidly. It's really starting to go quickly now. Um, A significant, very significant deterioration in the Titanic, if you look at pictures of it when it was discovered, again, I think it was 86 versus now, it is falling apart. So those sounds could have been that. Those sounds could have been... um, I don't know, the reason that the sound the sound story was compelling was that it was on the half hour. At least that's the rumor, Th- this may not be true at all. This is how news breaks. Um, Aesop's retreat says, new Fox News headline, Navy detected sub-implosion with top secret system the day the vessel went missing. I was kind of saving this for the denouement, as we would say if I was overeducated and gone to Harvard. Um, if we were able to detect the implosion of of, um, Scorpion in 68 and K-129 in 68, and many of them since then, and given the unbelievable increase in sensitivity in electronics that has occurred since 1968, that the reason that I was convinced that there was a chance they were still alive was because I had no doubt whatsoever, none, none, that the Navy would have detected this. And so since the Navy didn't come forward and say, yeah, we've got a, we've got a, a, we've got a, a transient sound right at that exact time, consistent with a in- hull implosion. So there's no question in my mind, there was no question in my mind that, that they would have known about it, which begs the question of why didn't they say so? The Fox headline says, a Navy detected sub-implosion with top secret system. Maybe. But the SOSUS system is not top secret. I suspect it was detected by SOSUS. It might have been detected by something else, something more advanced than SOSUS, but you could blame it on SOSUS. The existence of SOSUS has been widely known for 40, 50 years now at least. SOSUS, for those who will be arriving later, the uh, underwater listening stations that the U.S. Navy has around the world to listen for enemy submarines mostly. We don't know how... Sensitive they are, but we know they're a lot more sensitive than we suspect. So there's no question that that given the number of these locations that we have these sensors around the the, uh, the planet, that that something was detected, and and the, the reason that I'm sure they detected it was because they had a timestamp. Um, the the moment of loss of signal from the from the Titan was they had that down to within a minute or two. And so when the Navy, if the Navy didn't just hear it, because there's a lot of ocean noise, you know, we don't realize how noisy the ocean is. Tens of thousands of propellers and and whales and underwater volcanoes, all these things are loud. The ocean's a loud place. And nevertheless, we have extraordinarily sophisticated uh, listening stations and extraordinarily sophisticated software to, to... suppress out the um the sounds that we don't that we're not interested in but i know i knew that if there had been an implosion they would have heard it and and what they're revealing here is that they did hear it so that really raises an important question and that is if the navy knew that this had been an implosion then why did they take five days to re- re- admit it and why didn't they in- in- announce it immediately and and saved this uh, rescue effort. If you saw our show on, um, on the Titan, which we recorded on Tuesday before the news of the, of the implosion, uh, it's called A Forlorn Hope. It's a right angle I did with Stephen Scott. Scott brought the episode. And Scott asked the question, how much trouble should we go to to rescue people in a situation like this? And, and what the question was on, a lot of comment sections were, why should we spend this money rescuing millionaires who uh, knew what they were doing and were essentially just goofing off burning money. I started this conversation by talking about I'd like to know what the dollar value is above which you become an evil person. They were spending their own money to do what they wanted to do and that's what every single person who criticizes them does every day. Um, So, what? what do we do what's our obligation and and what are our moral decisions as a country as a as a uh, as an amateur historian and as an amateur i hate the word amateur expert but i guess that's what i am on the soviet system in the soviet union over the course of reading for and not just reading i mean deep diving research on many many different occasions I think that the, the biggest difference between the Soviet Union and the United States, the biggest difference, is is their uh, is how they value human life, and this is not surprising. Uh, Marx always sold uh, Marx and Lenin sold Marxism as new and scientific, but collectivism has been here forever. It's always been collectivism. It's always been the peasants and the and the and the the nobles individualism is the new arrival came here in 1776 Um, and so the question is um, thank you Marisha yes so so the question is do we have an obligation to spend millions of dollars and obviously thousands of 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 man hours and all the rest of it to rescue five people who were well aware of the risk and who furthermore uh... knowingly took that risk and by the way I don't think I've, I've seen the name before, uh, Time Pair, um, but he calls me a gentleman historian. I swear I'm going to put that on a business card. That is the greatest thing I think I've ever been called, a gentleman historian. And it's good. It's it's accurate, too, because when I, obviously, when I do my reading, I, I only I only do research out of leather-bound books and my richly wood-paneled uh, study in my, you know, my red velvet smoking jacket with my fez and my um, my uh, pipe by a fireplace. Uh with brandy, um, that's how I do my research. Thank you for that. Um, so, so people are complaining. Oh, we wasted all. The, we spent all this money. We shouldn't be spending the money. They knew what they were doing. It's only five people. Why are we spending all this money? And my position on this was, we need. We we my position was we use everything in the box. And what's what's not lost on me. And this and now we're getting to something that is actually really important. During the time that this search for these five people went on, a ship full of of political refugees was lost at sea. Hundreds of them died. Hundreds of them. So, I've seen the argument many times that people don't care if they're poor. Hundreds of them can die if they're poor, they don't get any news coverage, but if you have five millionaires dying, then that's worldwide news. And um, and I I completely reject that. And here's why. Somebody tell me what the number is. How many people on Earth die a day? It's got to be hundreds of thousands, if not more. It's got to be I would imagine it'd be millions. How many people die around the world in a given day? So so this tragedy with these. With these immigrants or these political exiles who 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 during the course of this five day uh, drama lost their lives. Why why didn't we care about them? And I think the reason is we didn't care about them because we don't. It's not even that we don't care. It's they they didn't they didn't approach our radar. You know the, the thing about about consciousness and this is something I never really considered about AI until now. Um, is how much stuff we filter out. I don't, Phil, are you still? You still there, my friend Phil Trick, who's uh, in the comment section often. Because I learned an interesting lesson. We'll just wait for the ping to come back. Um, but we filter out things. We have to. Uh, I knew my my wife is extraordinarily sensitive. Okay, glad you're there, Phil. Your your, your progeny is about to be mentioned. in Dispatches here. Um, my wife is extremely sensitive to to uh, people suffering, and especially to animals. She's often alluding to the number of kittens that she would find freezing or frozen out in Siberia, and, and these things affect her very heavily. And they don't affect me that heavily because I'm filtering them out. Uh, I have a, a, a deep love of animals, uh, and um, and I and I. You know, I'm the kind of guy drive 40 miles to take a little finch to a wildlife relief center. But we have to filter things out. We cannot, you can't function. I briefly dated a woman, God, in the early 90s who cried all the time. When I say briefly, I mean like for two dates. Crying because of what was going on in South Africa with apartheid. And I remember saying... Look, it's not that I don't sympathize with this, but, you know, since you have no control over it, other than whatever protesting you want to do, uh, you, you kind of need to, you, you, you can't go through life like this. You can't just go through life like an, like an exposed raw nerve. Uh, and Bandit says, uh, Statistics t- StatisticTimes.com says, 164,711 people die every day. Well, now we know why the whole world was riveted by this and this is why I reject the business of we're, we 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 cared because they're rich. We didn't care because they're rich. We cared because they had faces. They we cared because they were individuals. They weren't they were 5 out of the 164,711. They were 5 that had faces and none of the others different. Did the the refugees on that on that ship that sank which were three or four hundred of the 164,711 every day, were faceless. They were not individuals. That's a number. Stalin, who murdered more people than anybody in history except for Mao, had it exactly right. You know, one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. And, and the reason that people cared so much about, about these people on board the Titan is because they had faces. And because they had faces, and and because they were stuck at the bottom of the ocean, and because they were stuck, presumably, at the time is what we were thinking, stuck at the bottom of the ocean, right on the Titanic, the scene of this tremendous tr- catastrophe, means that we not only recognize them as individuals, I don't think there's a person here that's that's been following the story that at some point or another, I can't imagine anybody who's been following the story, at some point or another didn't say to themselves, my God, what must that have been? Be like if you're if you're what as we thought what what must that be like if you're trapped at the bottom of the ocean for four days and waiting for the air to go you know what is that like how horrible would that be it's it's pitch black it's freezing cold and 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 you know your end is coming and you know people are coming you know that people are coming for you you just don't know if they're going to get there in time they're individuals, and we can all put ourselves in their situation. And the reason I reject it as them being millionaires is because we do this as a species fairly frequently when they're not millionaires. Remember when there were those miners that were trapped, and the, they just made a movie about this, right? these, these uh, I cannot remember if they were South Americans or, or Filipinos, honestly. See, there's a great example. But the world knew that there were some 20-something miners that were trapped in this mine, and... We're going to do everything we can to get them out. Remember when baby Jess was it baby Jessica fell down a well? This little tiny baby was wedged down this well, and you know, and the whole world is watching. They've got guys all around. You can't just go digging down there. Just you know, you got to you got to try and save the, the kid's life. They're alive. That's the key. You see, if they if they were known to be dead, this would be a, a, a news story. It wouldn't be a, a fascination. We uh, we assumed that there was a chance they were alive. And all of us can put ourselves in the situation where we're inside that submersible or we're we're trapped upside down in a well as a child or it's our child that's trapped upside down in the well and we can imagine what it must be like to be stuck in a mine where there's been a giant cave-in and knowing that you... The Chileans, the S.O.S.R. Chileans. Knowing that people are coming to rescue you but not knowing whether they're going to get there in time. Um, Internet historian did a segment on a guy on a case a really remarkable case happened in the United States I don't remember exactly when I want to say it was the early 20th century 20s or 30s something like that where a man whose name will magically appear here in the comment section for those of you watching uh, on a recording a man who is a cave explorer was exploring this cave apparently stumbled fell down and was wedged upside down a long long way into this cave and um and so eventually after being upside down for 12 hours or something along those lines his brother or a friend or something came looking for him found him couldn't pull him out went to get help and then the entire world focused on this guy who who lived for like seven or eight days and and up above there were all these uh all of these um, competitions. Who's gonna? Who's got the authority? 182 hours. Wow. Bandit 848. Thank you. 182 hours. Upside down. They couldn't. They were talking about sinking a, a different shaft, and they, in fact, they had sunk a different shaft. They, they were digging down beside him. They wanted to get next to him. Then cut sideways. That's how they ended up recovering the body. But he didn't make it. But 187 hours. That's that's a long time. And the whole world was there. Their whole consciousness was there. And and this guy wasn't a, a millionaire or a billionaire. He was an individual. That's why people cared. There's a, there's, a, there's a man down there who's stuck in a cave. There's a little girl that's stuck in a well. And all of us as humans connect to that. And that's why when people, when Scott asked the question, how much do we do? What, what are the limits? of the efforts that we should go to to rescue people in a situation like that. And my answer is we we do everything in the box. Everything we got. Everything. I don't care about the cost. And 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 I want to be clear about this. And I and I think it's worth doing even if it costs additional lives because the people that are going to do the rescue are volunteers and they're in it for the same reason that people are in the military or the police or the, or the, or firefighters, even if people lose their lives trying to rescue them, they're not, they're not giving their lives to rescue them. It's not like they're not, it's not like it's a suicide mission. So I say everything in the box, all of it. And the reason I say all of it is because the Soviets just don't think this way. If you, if you murder 20 million of your own people, when I was in Nashville a week ago, I got a chance to see the first cut of an empire of terror. And not only not only was that astonishingly beautifully lit but the post-production on that show actually nearly had me cry and what nearly had me crying of words that I wrote and recorded was I was talking about these mass graves that still exist within you know 20 miles of downtown Moscow including inside Moscow here's a here's a house where they shot 36,000 people in the basement and there's people outside on a sidewalk, sitting on a bench, drinking Starbucks. But when they were talking about uh, one, one or two of these places, Comunarca is one of them, the editors on this show, on, on Empire of Terror, had found photos of inside Comunarca where people, just lots and lots of thin trees, and people had gone to individual trees and nailed the pictures of people that died there on those trees and when I saw those faces there it really got to me. I may have taken a little bit of PTSD on this because and I get into the details of what of what the Soviet and the, and the Czechos did. I I, I I spend one episode, I closed one of those episodes with 15 minutes and the whole thing is incredibly lit but during those 15 minutes I said I was reading direct quotes from a guy who was there. It wasn't me quoting him, I was just reading from the book. And I said, guys, on this segment alone, it's about fifteen minutes. And to set it off, so that it doesn't look like me talking, to set it off that I'm just reading, I want to read this in red light. I want, I want the light to be blood red, just for the segment alone. And the filmmaker guy said, "Oh, okay, so this is cool. Now, now we got an idea of the, We can actually, I want say, have fun with this. But. So I did. I just read fifteen minutes of all the things that this guy saw during the." Um, during Lenin's terror, the Red Terror. The most memorable of all of these um, horrors that were committed, I'll just give you two, the two that come to mind immediately, is one of them was they took uh, former nobility, you know, rich people who deserved to die, and teachers and things like that, in one particular location, the Cheka, Lenin's people, during the Red Terror took a number of these people and threw them into an industrial furnace and the bodies were found in the slag pile the next day so there's all of this molten metal with arms and legs and heads sticking out of it that got my attention another one was I forget the name of it now somebody's gloves they would take uh, enemies of the state and many of us know what that feeling is now thank you for, for that for the Justice Department, the FBI, and all the rest of it. They would take people and um, they would have a giant pot of boiling water and then they would grab them and put their hands in the boiling water and keep them in there for five or six minutes. I haven't had the experience. I hope not to have the experience. I would imagine that the first several seconds are just agony and after a relatively short period of time, they're just, there's just numbness there. But the reason they did that was they put their hands in boiling water for five minutes, and when they'd pull him out, they would take hooks and peel his skin off and they'd make gloves. Gloves of human flesh that have been taken off of living people. This is what the this is what the Soviet system is. This is what Vladimir Putin is. Vladimir Putin's grandfather was Lenin's cook and he was Stalin's cook. This is this is this is how they work, this is what they do. And and that attitude towards human life is is what the collectivists do and um... and they've got a case not for not for boiling the the, the hands, right, but they've got a case the case is they were aware of what they were doing the chance of finding them is poor it's only five people We're going to spend millions of dollars on this. Couldn't we do more good for more people by spending this money somewhere else? And the answer for that is yes, you could. Yes, absolutely you could. And this is why Star Trek is Star Trek, right? Because you'll never hear this kind of question in Star Wars, which I like a lot, but doesn't have that mystical effect that that Star Trek has on me. Spock has a case, right? The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. That is the collectivist argument, and it makes a lot of sense. In fact, it makes so much sense that it's hard to get to the place where you're the antithesis of this that's where I live and that's where you live too. No. No. The needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many. In a situation like this. That's what that's what matters. In a situation like this, the needs of the five outweigh the needs of the many because because we know, we connect to them, we know that that experience of of terror and living on the edge—they're almost like Schrodinger's cat. They didn't turn out to be the case in the Titan, but you got a kid in a mine or a guy in a cave or miners trapped or whatever—they're—they're—they're they're, they're like Schrodinger's cat. They live in—they live in a state of being alive and dead at the same time. We don't know how it's going to turn out, and and so we so we rush to rescue these people. And so we do that. And as Sad Wings Raging points out, Spock wasn't forced to go into that chamber, no. So I want to come back to what I mentioned earlier about filters. The reason that these people, that these events get to us, Baby Jessica and the guy in the cave and the miners and the people on the Titanic, on the Titan, uh, they're on the Titanic now. Uh, you can add five more people to the to that uh, list of that ship's uh, casualties? But we, the reason we we don't care about the other 186,000, 187,000 people because we filter it out. And I got a little distracted, as I often do, but um, my friend Phil Trick, uh, who I've known since I was 13 or 14, is listening now. And um, I remember very well when he and his wife, Bobby, when, when their, their first daughter, Christy, was born. And I went over to their house, and Christy was really young. A couple, I don't know, maybe a year old. I don't actually remember her age but she was very young and we were standing outside and, and she was playing on the grass and all of a sudden she said airplane and we both looked around and and sure enough way off in the distance, not overhead, I mean, way off in the distance there was an airplane and and Phil and I just sat there and just said it's amazing that, that that little girl is able to to perceive that airplane because she hasn't gotten old enough yet to filter it out airplane you know shiny you have to filter it out you you can't you can't live in, in a world well pilots do I've never met a pilot didn't look at an airplane it was in the sky but in any event you, you can't stop your life every time an airplane flies by and go airplane consciousness has to filter these things out, and and it has to filter out all of the pain and suffering that goes on in the world, as well as all of the joy and happiness and all the rest of it. You have to. There's no way to get through life as a moral person who feels sympathy if you don't. You simply, you'll go insane. And I bet, as I mentioned, one or two people have actually gone insane about this. Filtering it out mean, doesn't mean you don't care. It means you don't know. And and it's not even that you don't want to know it's just that you can't know, okay, you can't. you cannot connect to millions of people in the same level that you can connect to one or two and um and i uh i think that's I think that's the reason one uh, small. Interesting footnote to this uh, sad tale is that coming back to um, to the company and the and the design of the vehicle and the vessel submersible and all the rest of it um, uh, coming back to OceanGate and Stockton Rush, we find out during the um, find out during the uh, rescue attempt uh, that his wife is a direct descendant of a survivor of the Titanic. So he's obviously got an emotional connection to it. So I find it inconceivable to think that, um, that Stockton Rush is unaware of the fact that 10 or 20 years prior to the sinking of the Atlantic, a man had written a story about the biggest ocean liner in history that goes out and hits an iceberg and sinks on its maiden voyage. And the name of that ship was Titan, that's one of the really remarkable coincidences in history but i can't imagine that somebody who has that level of passion about the titanic is unaware of that story And if you are aware of it then why the hell would you name your your vessel that when i first heard that there's a sub missing uh, diving on the titanic my first thought was it's probably one of the Russian subs of Pax One and Pax Two were they I think the ones that Cameron went down on? Those are highly capable vehicles. I think one of those were the one that anyway, a lot more capable than, than Titan. Why would you why would you name your your vessel that? I guess you're doing it to tie into Titanic to make the maybe it's a marketing decision. But, you know, superstitions can ruin your life. You can be owned by superstitions, and I'm not in favor of superstitions per se, but what I am saying is is that virtually all superstitions have some, some germ of truth that they're predicated on. Sailors have all kinds of superstitions. Many of them don't make sense, but, but you don't have an entire culture believe the same thing without some reason for it. There's some reason for it. Why is it that, that killing an albatross is the worst thing that can happen to a sailor in, in terms of sailor superstition. Why is that? I don't know. I'm sure it has something to do with being out of sight of land or something, but but nevertheless there it is. And so, I would not have named my, uh, my submersible Titan because a guy wrote a story about the Titanic twenty years before the Titanic where the same thing exactly happens. The name of that ship is Titan. I'm not going to do that. Um, yeah, just, I'm just not. Uh, so, um, AOC says, do not name your airplane Phoenix. Flight to the Phoenix movie with Jimmy Stewart. A great movie. But the stunt man who flew, the stunt pilot who flew the reconstructed ship, was killed during the filming of the movie. You don't. I, I just. This kind of superstition actually. Yeah I, I, this is turning into a really interesting rant here. The reason I wouldn't do it is because of this idea of tempting fate. That's really what's going on here. Are you are you tempting fate? There is a hubris to this. There is a there is a human We call it a superstition, but like I said, I think it's based on reality. That you don't mock destiny or fate or especially God. Now, I played with this many times with my friends. When we would be, it was a period when we were just doing nothing but watching Gator football. And we might be up by two touchdowns or something like that in the third quarter. And I would get up and I would say, God Himself cannot take away this victory from the Gators. I did it specifically to make everybody uncomfortable. That is, that's it, right? See, you, Phil. Um, God Himself could not. They're saying, "Shut up!" And I'm saying, and I'm and I'm doing that to get that reaction because it's it's interesting. Clearly, it doesn't have any effect on the outcome of the game. But also clearly, you don't go around mocking god or 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 fate because because not because it brings it about but because it indicates a level of hubris that you have that indicates that 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 self-centeredness is hiding flaws in construction and this is what i think happened with Stockton Rush he i think he was extremely hubristic about his design and about his new way of doing things and and did not Go to the care and trouble that somebody should have done in a case like this. Again, I admire him for using his own money and running his own business. But the business about oh no no they're not tourists we're all scientists no, they're tourists. If you don't if you're ashamed of running a tourism business, then then get out of the business. But don't try to don't try to lie about it and cover it up, because he's he's doing what Mitt Romney did in 2012. Mitt Romney, you know you're multimillion. I don't have that much money, but of course you do. You know. I, my Mitch, Mitt Romney has a hundred million dollars. I don't have a hundred million dollars, I have hundred and fifty million dollars, I earned every penny of it, and people who traded with me freely think they got the better deal of it, because nobody trades down. Um, so so all of this stuff is built into the to this this incredible tale. As an idea, I've mentioned many times on this show and on Stratosphere Studio as well, that I spent uh a number of years going back to the University of Florida. I didn't graduate the University of Florida, but I left it in 1981, I was there 79, 80, 81, I think maybe 82, eight years of college down the drain. And then I went back in 93 till 97 because I was tired of living in LA and tired of being a limo driver, tired of trying to break into the script writing business, tired of all of it, went back to Florida. I was I had independent income from Kaiser Permanente. I was writing comedy. I was writing jokes for Kaiser Permanente and getting paid for it. And I thought I can do that anywhere, so I went back to University of Florida because I wanted to do a comedy show and we did. And um, and we did I don't know, maybe a hundred different sketches over a course of three, or four episodes. It's called Grazing. The idea was that you're just flicking through the channels and we did that because watching Saturday Night Live which has practical problems, it's a live show. You can't, you can't, you've got to have some of those sketches run seven or eight minutes because that's how long it's going to take to get somebody in a new costume or whatever. No, I did not graduate, actually. I'm a, I'm a, I am am a college dropout. Um, and that's what saved me, I think. Um, but of all the people there, we, we, we had so much fun. It was a just a transformational experience for all of us. And a few years ago, we lost uh, uh, one of them a guy named Ron Smith. And he called himself Rocket. I like to call himself Rocket. I like to call himself Reverend Rocket. And Ron was the most unusual person I've ever. Rocket was the most unusual person I've ever met in my life. He had the kind of innocence that um, the kind of innocence that Chauncey Gardner has in uh, being there rocket was so imaginative and he would dress in such a bizarre fashion he was like skeletal looking guy and and he would go out in public wearing things that looked like cosplay outfits and I was I was suffering second-hand embarrassment during those times but at his uh, at his remembrance ceremony at his eulogy I said you know that's the thing about about rocket. He, he, was, he was never embarrassed because he was so innocent about it. It never occurred to him. I, I picked him up one day in, in the University of Florida in Gainesville, close to the summer. It's hot there. And I went to pick him up to go shoot a sketch. And he came out in black leather pants, some kind of an embroidered black shirt. He had a black leather cowboy hat on, a neckerchief or something like that. He got in the car and I said, "Ron, you look like a gay Bra- Brazilian prostitute." You know, this is not what he was wearing for the sketch. This is day-to-day clothing. He, he was like, "Huh? Really?" Yeah. I bring Rocket up because he and I had an idea for a sketch that we never did shoot, but we just laughed and laughed and laughed till we cried about it when we were when we were working it out. It the best time I had. I think ever was those writers meeting comedy group comedy writers getting together. So we we're pitching ideas, and Ron and I were we talking about this idea, and and mostly it was Ron. And he said, "I want to do a sketch where I'm a golfer, okay? And it's a it's a critical putt, right? And we have you know we we'll have people in the background, and we'll get the, get that sound. It's like a critical putt, and I want to and I want to make this long, long, long putt, and I want it to go right to the hole, and then just whip around a little bit and miss it by this much, right? Just barely misses it." By this much. I said, okay, I'm with you. He said, and then, he said, then I want to take the putter and raise it to the sky and shout, eternal enemies! Eternal enemies! (laughs) I don't remember whether we were talking about whether we're going to put a lightning strike in there after that or something, but I do remember Ron, I do remember Rocket pitching the idea that because he'd missed this putt, he he was now... He was now an enemy of God that the rest of his existence was, was going to be predicated on, on destroying creation and, 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 and demolishing God because of this horrendous injustice that that he did to him. Eternal enemies! God, that was hilarious to me. I just thought that was so funny. But the reason it's funny is because of that tempting fate, right? It's like, you don't do that. You, even people who don't believe in God, most of them kind of feel like it just shouldn't tempt fate probably because if it turns out that something bad does happen to you it it makes a pretty good predicate you know damn you eternal enemies eternal enemies I'll never forget it ever because you missed a putt so I wouldn't have named my submersible titan because if something had happened to that submersible that name would be ironic is there superstition about that yeah certainly sure it's certainly superstition but I wouldn't have done it um, and sailors have a number of superstitions I think one of them is you don't set sail on a Friday or is it a Sunday I think a Friday maybe another one is um, the worst thing that can happen to a ship is to have it be renamed rechristened renaming a ship they say, is a, the worst luck you can have so there so sailors not so much today obviously but for most of the history of people being on the ocean, sailors have been probably the most superstitious people there is. And I realize now that it's predicated on truth, but there's actually more to it than that. The reason that sailors are so, were so superstitious is because that kind of superstition is a psych, psychological protection against danger. And you think about what those what those men did in the era of sail, right, where you are going to get in a wooden vessel that's not much bigger than a, than a high school bus in some cases, certainly in the case of the ships that Columbus brought over. Santa Maria is a tiny ship, but the Nina and the Pinter are just lifeboats, basically. And you're going to go sail around the world in this thing. You've got no radio, no navigation, The no chance of you getting lost or running out of supplies or, or hitting pirates or running aground. All of these things are just tremendously high. And... You're just a person out there, and there is the ocean, there is the sea. It's endless, it's, it's an abyss, it, 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 is, it is a living thing, it's, a, it's an enemy. I mean, sailors love the sea, but they also fear and respect and hate it. And so superstition is so strong among sailors because superstition gives sailors the sense that there are rules out here, and if we follow the rules, we'll be okay, that's what superstitions do for them. Is it? It, it eliminates uncertainty. Uncertainty is what's un, is what is unbearable for, for humans. Uh, AOC says, uh, "Don't whistle at sea. That's bad luck." So, uh, Mel Frank, any Johnny Quest fans here? They're, they're, the room is filled of them. John, but we'll get we'll probably get to that on Stratosphere Studio on Monday. So, so it gives them a sense of control it gives them a sense of anticipatory compliance Uh, somebody recommended to me when we were undergoing the whole mask thing why was it that so many people were enthusiastic about the masks i can understand I, i never bought into it but i can understand why you would wear a mask because you thought it might help slow the pandemic down either through transmission or reception whatever i can understand wearing a mask In, in that situation. But I could never understand the people that seem to enjoy it. I couldn't figure it out. I still can't figure it out. Here in Los Angeles, I still see them every day. We talked about this a show or two ago. What the people are doing with the mask, or the people who are first in line to get the, uh, I think I probably could say vaccine now, the people who are first in line to do that, all of that, why? It's a, it's a form of superstition. It's what this guy... Uh, called anticipatory compliance it was a a book that was recommended to me called the extinction i think of the european jews and it was written by a european jew and it is incredibly dense tough slog to get through but this guy, this jewish man was saying that when these laws were put into place like the laws that said now in this in this particular ghetto now you must wear a yellow armband or you must wear a yellow star and armband you got to be branded you got to be publicly branded and deal with the disgrace and the humiliation and the and the you know the just the degrading quality of that. It's a horrible thing to have to bend a knee to. But he said there were large numbers of people, large numbers of people who who were first in line. Jews who were first in line that day. The day that the law went into effect, these were people who were standing in line so they could get their armbands. Why? He said it was anticipatory compliance. He said what they were psychologically doing, they probably didn't realize, but what they, were probably, what they were psychologically doing is they were saying to their murderers, to the people that held their lives in their hands, I'm one of the good ones. I'm, I'm, I'm one of the good ones. You don't, have to, you don't have to put me in a gas chamber. You have to worry about me. You tell me to do something, I'll do it. It's a form of Stockholm Syndrome, but that's what it is. It's anticipatory compliance. Somebody's got a gun to your head, and you are trying to show them, no, you say jump, I'll say how high. It makes a lot of sense to me, actually. And so that's a a fragment of of what's going on here with this thing. But ultimately it becomes a way of controlling your anxiety. There are people who were much more terrified of this thing than I was. I was worried about this thing for about a week about COVID. About a week. When I heard the first case had come to the United States, the first person had died, and this is all about risk assessment, that's how it ties into this no, something. Um, when I heard about the first person had died of COVID in the United States, I, I wanted to find out more about this person. Turned out the person was something like 68 years old. It was a man, who, I'm, I'm inventing this, but to the effect of a man with emphysema and diabetes and overweight and that kind of thing. That was the first fatality from COVID. And then as the numbers started to come in and you started to look at the actual data, sort of what they were telling you, you could look at this thing on a, on a graph and realize zero to 10-year-old, zero fatalities. 10 to 20, essentially zero. 30 to 40, one or 2%. 40 to 50, 20%. My, my bracket, I think, was, I don't, I don't know. It was a small, small number. But it wasn't as small as most of the population. I'm 64 now. And when I saw that number, when I saw that chart of actual deaths, I said, okay, this is not a civilization-crushing kind of thing. Even if I get it, my chance of surviving it is excellent, because just looking at the number, it was a good number. But I also realized that not only was it a, a, a good number, 90, for me, for my age group, I think the survival rate was 98.2%, something like that. Those are not bad odds, 98.2%. I'll take them. But I also realized that that 98.2% of people, let me rephrase that, that, that 1.8% of people that did die of my, in my age group of COVID also included people who were very sick to begin with, like this, this other guy. So the actual number for me, being in relatively good health, was even much higher than that. And I just I, and I just remember saying to myself, clearly, I, to, I told Natasha somewhere early, early on in this thing, within a day or two of this thing getting locked down, when it was clear that this – and Lord Bios, is, who's here, by the way, now, when we did the uh, Chronosphere Lounge, uh, Lord Bios has got just tremendous, actual, genuine knowledge. I'm just speculating. He kept me – constantly kept me out of hot water. So I'm just glad to have a chance to acknowledge you for that again, Lord Bios, because it was – wasn't fun, but it sure was interesting, and it was great to have somebody – making sure I wasn't wandering off into um, areas that I didn't mean to because I didn't have full information. Anyway, when, when COVID happened, I, I said to Natasha, look, honey, I don't know about you, but I want to go down to LAX and lick some doorknobs. That's what I want to do. If this thing is an airborne contagion, and it's as contagious as the cold or the flu, then it's only a matter of time and every day that we get older at this point we're getting higher on the statistical side of not surviving this we're both very healthy our chances are excellent i this well before the vaccine i would rather just get it over with because if we get it and survive it and that's almost certainly what's going to happen is that is by far by far the most likely case then we're immune and then we don't have to worry about it anymore right so that's that's how i look at risk it's like okay, I, I don't want the uncertainty. I want to know. If it's going to kill me, then I then <laughs> if, if it's going to kill me, I'd like to have it kill me early rather than being afraid of it killing me for three years and then have it kill me. So we both got the Delta variant when the final one, whatever it was, uh, Epsilon or whatever, there was a, the, the, the last strain that came through was really quite mild, but the one we got was monstrous. We were... I didn't eat for 11 days, I lost 16 pounds at the Wuhan Weight Loss Center. Uh, and um, and we did not end up taking the vaccine because I, I was about three days away from doing it. And a friend of mine said, I need to have a talk with you about this. He said, this thing alters your DNA. And I said, come on, come on, come on now. Seriously, vaccines don't work that way, we know that. And she said, right, that's right, it's not a vaccine. Um, anyway, risk assessment and all of this is what this story is about. And 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 to that degree, I think I'll close this story about this sub-tragedy, which is poaching over two hours now. I think I will I will close it by saying this: I feel about these five people the same way I felt about the uh, the seven astronauts on the Challenger and the seven astronauts on Columbia. Uh, I wrote an essay called "Courage" about the uh, final minutes of Columbia, and I said that um, that, uh, unlike the Challenger astronauts, at least the crew of Columbia got to spend eight or nine days in space doing what they loved. They probably had 20 or 30 seconds of knowing they were going to die, uh, and in their case, apparently. It happened rather quickly, not because of fire or anything like that. Because the, the, the loads suddenly, when they lost the wing, it just essentially just broke their necks. They just just took this incredible sideways g-force. So their actual end, I'm sure, was pretty much instantaneous. Yeah, that was called courage. And um, but I remember saying, "This is this is how you go, right? I mean, this is this is it. You you do what you love, and if and, and you know the risks, you know it's dangerous, and you take them." And you take them with open eyes. You don't blind yourself to the risk. You don't tell you, oh, it's probably not going to happen. Now you got to face it. You got to. If you're going to fly, for me, I would ride. To, I would ride. To, I would certainly ride to space in a SpaceX vehicle. But I wouldn't ride into space until I'd taken a good look at the three spacesuits from the Apollo 1 crew, because those ph- photos of that are available now. I don't remember seeing them, but they they've been released sometime in the not too distant past. And on Apollo 1, like people in this submarine, which is, I think, my last point about the sub, they were in a capsule that they could not get out of. And, and so they burned to death. And if you're going to get in a capsule and go into space, for, I'm speaking for myself here, I want to see those suits. I, I want to I see what what the actual risk is. The guy who who opened the hatch, who knew them all, was a close friend of all of these guys, said that when they opened the hatch on Apollo 1, if you've seen the photos of Apollo 1, it's a blast furnace in there. He said he couldn't, not only couldn't he tell who was who, but he couldn't even tell what parts of bodies were which. There's a plastic lining inside the ca- cockpit, inside the cabin, another design flaw, which Apollo 1 had, five hundred and something registered squawks about problems. But they said that he said that there was plastic lining on the inside of the of the capsule and that this plastic had melted and when he opened up Apollo one, all he could see was this mass of melted plastic with burned hands, arms and legs coming out of it and and that's morbid and horrible, but I think if I was going to get in a capsule, and go to space, I would want to. I would want to see the inside. I don't need to see the bodies, but seeing the inside of the capsule and seeing their suits, which are just shredded by fire, um, and and that's what I think informed risk is. So, I um, I would take that ride. I really would, because uh, I. I think the reward out, outweighs the risk. I think the risk is pretty slight. Even on the Titan, which was clearly the, the most uh, risky design of the nine subs that are capable of going down to that depth, uh, that that vehicle made 40 dives. Right? So 40 times people took that risk, got the reward, and didn't pay for it. Um, and I've also heard people say, you know, defending the fact that it was steerable by a a, a bluetooth game controller people saying look you got to have some kind of system for control this is a multi-axis system they spent millions of dollars developing the thing it works great and people are used to using it they had backups on board i would have preferred a usb connection or something but but my my point is people are saying my god it was insane you know to go down a thing with a game controller I don't think it was the game controller that would have worried me. I think it would have been, what would have worried me was hearing him say, I didn't want an entire company of 50-year-old white guys, because that's telling me that he's got some kind of, I don't want to say agenda, blinders, blinders. That's, That's where the hubris comes in. I'm gonna hire young people because I like inspiring them. I believe that's true. But I also believe that if you're going to put your life and the lives of your clients in the hands of noobs, then then you're shaking your fist in the sky and saying eternal enemies. You're 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 begging for you're begging for a comeuppance. Hubris, pride goeth before the fall, pride goeth before the dive. Pride goeth before the launch. It was pride that killed the seven on Challenger. We knew those problems with those SRBs. It was pride that killed the people on Columbia. We knew that the the external tank was shedding foam. We knew it. We knew it happened, and we knew that it could be catastrophic, and we did it anyway because pride goeth before the fall. And I was willing to forgive NASA, the Challenger crew, because people are people, and you get complacent, and that's human nature, and so on. But I wasn't willing to forgive them Columbia. When I found out that Columbia... That the that the, the 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 foam that had that had destroyed the leading edge of the wing on Columbia had occurred on previous missions and they were aware of it. That's when I that's when I got off the NASA train and I had been the conductor of the NASA train. I'd been Mr. NASA my entire life up until that point. Um, but when I found out that they had done it again, that they'd learned nothing from Challenger, even though you know almost twenty years had gone by. Nevertheless, you're back to that. It's it's a bureaucracy, right? Did it blow up? No. Nope. Well, didn't blow up last time. Did it blow up time before that? No. Nope. Well, and it probably won't blow up today. And they're right, it probably won't. But eventually, it did. And so, and so, that attitude, that kind of cavalier arrogance. That's what it is. It's it's just, that's the only word for it. It's it's arrogance. The arrogance of saying that I that my. Emotional desire to, uh, or, or whatever psychological belief it is, that my emotional desire to be a, a, a maverick and a trendsetter and and doing things a new way, and we're going to show everybody how to do it, we're going to do it cheap and inexpensive, we're going to use off-the-shelf components, we're going to use game controllers to control the sub, that is hubris, and not hiring fifty-year-old white guys is hubris. Because I'll tell you one thing, I did notice, and I texted this out to a small group of people, including Burton rutan the second after they made the announcement, the Coast Guard made the announcement that they'd found uh, wreckage consistent with, um, with the hull implosion. The second I saw that TV uh, press conference today, it was at 3 Eastern, I think, and he said, no, we, we found fragments of the pressure hull. It, it, the, the things imploded. And there was a whole group of people behind this Coast Guard Admiral. And every single one of the people out there who were the experts trying to rescue these people were 50-year-old white guys, every one of them. And that wasn't lost on me, because the 50-year-old white guys that were conducting the recovery and rescue operations were the best in their field. And on some level, Stockton Rush must have known that, and on some level, he decided that he wasn't going to go down that path. And that's what killed him. That's what killed him, Just and the other four people. It wasn't, it wasn't an engineering failure. It was, but that's not what caused it. What caused it was the attitude that I don't need experts to tell me how to do this. Because when he's saying I could have gone with experts, the experts are pretty much universally 50-year-old white guys. It's 50-year-old white guys that were trying to rescue them and fifty-year-old uh, white guys have done an awful lot of amazing things, and and to, to exclude that, which I I don't believe he did it for a woke reason. I think he did it for age reason. I think he did it because of maverick. Right? He's maverick. He's he's going to do things differently. He's going to. Steve Jobs is, is a maverick. Elon Musk is a maverick. Doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be that hubristic about things, but. But yeah, so uh, I'm not saying I'm glad that he was on the sub because I wish nobody was on the sub. But if if that vehicle is going to implode because of hubristic attitude on the part of the owner and uh, designer and operator, then it seems appropriate to me. And, and certainly in some on some level, you can ask Bruce Ismay about this one, more appropriate that he was on board than if he wasn't um i've just uh, we've gone for two hours and fifteen minutes and since this has been about one topic i'm not going to take any questions i'm just going to close it with this when people talk about risk and 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 fear of doing these kind of things then they've made their own person and, and wearing masks for the during the pandemic, after the pandemic, all of this, all of it—the the, the Challenger, Columbia explosion, everything I've been talking about for the last two hours—comes down to how do you assess risk, and when you assess risk, what you're doing is you are essentially putting a value on what your continuing is this existence is worth to you. Think about that for a minute, because I just impressed myself. That's what risk assessment is it is saying what is my life worth to me flying experimental airplanes is more dangerous than not so there was a risk there and I increased my risk when I did that I mitigated the risk by making sure that I bought the best built experimental aircraft in the country and that I had experts go and inspect that airplane two of them before I purchased it and they said the construction is superb I wouldn't have done it otherwise I didn't want to take that level of risk but I took a level of risk because I wanted to fly the airplane. It was worth dying for. That's what I'm trying to tell you. That's the short form. And if you ask Dick Rutan, um why he flew around the world in, in, a, in a soap bubble or why Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon in a soap bubble, why did they do these dangerous things? The answer is because there are more important things to them than their own lives. There are things that are more important than their own lives. Think about that. All the people who say this was billionaires playing, they shouldn't have done it, it should be banned, shouldn't be allowed, these are people who are terrified of of life. Because I think if you weren't, you couldn't come to that conclusion. These were people making informed decisions using their own money. I think that the, I don't know if they were as informed about the hubristic aspect of this company and its owner, but I suspect they were. I suspect they were aware of it because they didn't just get off a plane, get on the sub. They had to train for a while. Uh, and so these people decided that seeing the experience of seeing the Titanic in person was more important than their lives. They didn't go down there expecting to die or knowing they were going to die, certainly, but they knew there was a, a, a much better than trivial chance of that happening. And same is true for going into orbit or anything like that. I almost said the same is true flying, for flying an airplane, but we've gotten so good at flying airplanes that it is genuinely without question true that you're much more likely to be killed in a car accident going to the airport than you are flying in a jet at 550 miles an hour and seven miles above the surface of the earth. So ultimately, I, I don't feel sorry for these people. I, I regret their loss, but I don't I don't pity them. I don't pity the astronauts on Columbia. I don't pity the astronauts on Challenger. I do pity people stuck in caves and people lost down wells and miners trapped because well, with the exception of Jessica, even those people knew what they were doing. They knew they were taking a risk. Um, And for me, there are things in, in life that are more important than my continuing existence. Now, I have to say that since I've been married, that equation has changed significantly because I'm no longer just responsible for my own self. It has definitely, definitely recalibrated my risk assessment um, uh, machinery. And some of it is just experience. I took some risks flying that I didn't intend to take, but looking back on it, I just think that was insane. What were you thinking? You know? I, my, my bag of experience got filled before my bag of lug ran out. I'm fortunate that way. Um, so, whenever you see somebody who ends up getting killed doing what they love, those are people you should admire, um, or at least respect. And the reason you should respect them. Is because that's how my dad died. That's exactly how my dad died. My dad died doing what he loved. I don't know if I told this before. I probably mentioned it once or twice. Uh, my dad was a was an outdoorsman. He he cut hand cut a a ski resort out of the trees in the Pocono Mountains when he was a teenager. Um, he was a hotel manager, very successful, very glamorous guy. Um, really achieved that kind of Don Draper kind of. 1960s success, you know, and prestige and hanging out with movie stars and married this beautiful woman and had four kids, one of whom was extraordinarily good looking. Uh, and, and so that was his life, but his, but his passion was outdoors. He, he, he loved to hunt. I would come up and visit him on Christmas. I drive up from Florida. And I, as I recall, every time I got there, he wasn't there. He was out in his um, blind up in a tree on a platform with a bow at, you know, one minute past the date when deer season opens. So that was that was what he loved doing. And he loved doing that. He loved fishing. About a year before my dad died, I went to visit him. It was his birthday. It took him to Red Lobster. No, Red Lion. Uh, and, um, and my dad was always the baby of the family. So he was always, always, he, he really... I don't want to say he was self-centered, but he lit up when things were about him. So I went and talked to the waitress, and you know, and said, "Hey, uh, I said I got to go to the bathroom." And I said, "It's my dad's birthday. You guys can do a cake. Yeah, no problem. Absolutely." So the cake comes out. And my dad's smiling. He's happy. He's eating cake. It's his birthday. His his sister, my aunt Marty, is there. They're the closest family members. So everybody's pretty happy. And his second wife, who I am, I shouldn't really say this, but I'm going to anyway, who is very, very much like Dylan Mulvaney, that kind of woman that Dylan Mulvaney presents. When I first saw it, they look alike. When I first saw Dylan Mulvaney, I went, oh boy. So we're all there, and completely out of nowhere, my dad says, did I tell you about the, the time I was fishing a year ago with Boyd Walker? Boyd was his lifelong friend. He'd known Boyd Walker, who was an attorney my dad and Boyd had been friends since they were seven years old. And he died when he was 77, so that's 70 years of friendship. And uh, I said, no, Dad, you didn't tell me that. So, well, we were out fishing about a year ago, and we were in this this stream, and I had done a lot to protect that stream because my dad spent the first half of his life building things and then spent the second half of his life trying to stop other people from building things. And... Uh, and he said, we got the stream, you know, filled with trout, and we were up there trout fishing, fly fishing, having a time of our lives. And the sun was setting, and it was a beautiful day, and uh, and I was casting this thing. Boyd was about 100 yards downstream. And uh, and he said, and the next thing you know, I'm sitting in the water up to here. I said, that's not good, Dad. I said, well. I just one minute I was standing and the next minute I was sitting and if I'd been in deeper water I'd probably be sitting underwater I thought well okay and then uh, without me following up on the question he said and this is the thing about it Bill this is what I thought when when I was sitting there in the water up to here I thought this is this is great said this is great this is exactly how I want to go it's exactly where I want to be it's exactly what I want to be doing and then my dad being my dad said he said and the best part of this is that son of a bitch Boyd Walker has to carry me out of here instead of the other way around and I thought "Wow." about a year later my dad uh, got a chance to go on a fishing trip in uh, actually it was Canada I guess and it was one of these really remote places where you have to fly in on a seaplane it was an expensive it was an expensive trip a family member had, had succeeded in in business and took my dad with him and my dad's younger brother my uncle jack so three or four of them went on this fishing trip in the middle of nowhere way out there and he uncle jack told me that as they were coming into land my dad had his face pressed up against the window the same way I do when I'm flying, but he wasn't into the flying. He was just looking at this remote location. They landed on the lake and they had to check in and had to go down this trail or something. And as they're getting out of the um, aircraft and, and people are getting ready to board to go out of there, they're coming out of there with salmon, you know, like like huge salmon. And my dad, got he was so excited, he said, he said Jack, we are going to take every goddamn... He didn't say goddamn. We're going to take every goddamn fish out of that lake. We're not going to leave a single one in there. We're going to get every one of them. He was just over the moon looking at these enormous fish that people are just bringing out by by the score. They're walking up this little trail, and uh, my dad is uh, behind Jack, and he says, Hang on a second, Jack. And, and my dad just sits down, and he lays back, and he's gone. And I remember thinking, you know you you always got your way, Dad. You always, you always ended up getting your way. You always did. You always got what you wanted in the end. It was always that way for you. Uh, because I know what he was thinking. Because he told me a year before it happened. He told me exactly what he was thinking. He told me he was happy, that he was doing what he loved, he was right where he wanted to be, and it was quick. And that's exactly what happened to those people on that submarine. Uh, they were killed quickly doing what they love, and since we all have to go, speaking for myself, that's how I want to go. Uh, This show is made possible by the members at BillWhittle.com who keep the lights burning, and if you like the content, we sure could use your help. If you want to become a member or make a one-time donation at BillWhittle.com, we'd certainly love to see you there. Um, Until then, We'll see you on Monday night for Stratosphere Studios and we'll see you next Thursday right here on the Stratosphere Lounge.